Hey guys, welcome to The Call, men's Bible study with men's expert and pastor, Kenny Luck. I'm your host, Jeremy, and we're so glad to have you join us today for part two in our series, My Disciple. Now today's study is going to be highlighting the fact that who we really are eventually comes out in our relationships. I think we can all agree that that could be a good thing or it could be a bad thing. You know, for most men, it's fair to say that relationships represent his greatest challenge, his greatest source of regret, or his greatest sense of achievement and satisfaction. Now, how do we know this? Because millions of men are turning to Everyman Resources, podcasts, curriculums on one topic more than any other, relationships. Now, whether he admits it or not, every man knows if he's not doing relationships right, he is not doing life right. And if you believe that, then I'm glad you're with us because in today's study, Jesus says that being his disciple has expected and positive consequence for everyone connected to him they will feel more loved. Now, before I hand it over to Kenny, take a moment and share this live stream. Now, let's join Kenny from Crossline Church in Laguna Hills, California, for part two of My Disciple. Six, five, four. Good morning. Welcome to this morning's call study. If you have a Bible, you're going to want to hold two spots, uh, one in Matthew chapter 5 and one in Luke chapter 7. Uh, if you're a movie person, you might have seen the movie starring Leo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks called Catch Me If You Can. Anybody ever see that movie? It's where he portrays, Leo DiCaprio portrays America's most notorious impersonator. His name was Frank uh, Abagnale, and his most famous impersonation was uh, that of being a Pan Am pilot. So you're saying, how do you fake or claim to be a pilot and fly a million miles, take 250 flights, and go to 26 countries without being caught? Well, he, 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 he called Pan Am and said, I'm a pilot. I've lost my uniform. The cleaners at the hotel have misplaced my uniform. I need a new uniform. So they send him a new pilot, and then he begins this whole career of flying a million miles, 250 flights, 26 countries. But, you know, eventually, eventually, in every situation where he impersonated somebody, the claim met a reality. So he would do what pilots call deadheading. If you're not familiar with what deadheading is, it's when a pilot in the industry has to be somewhere to pilot another plane, so they hop on a flight to be in the place so they can do their flight, and so it's an industry standard. So he deadheaded on all of these flights. He never had to take the controls until one flight when one of the pilots offered him the controls at 40,000 feet and forced him to take the controls on which he did know how to do one thing, enable autopilot. So he enabled autopilot for a minute, got out of the seat, went back to the deadhead, and that's when his airline career started to take a dive. But then one of the flight attendants that he was dating after he was being chased for Air France recognized him, turned him into the French police, and he got... Uh, got put in a cell with no food, naked, you know, and that, that, that ended his, his airline career. 
But then he also Im Im uh, impersonated a teaching professor at Brigham Young University. He also uh, impersonated being a physician, supervising physician at a hospital, until a baby who was deprived of oxygen came in, and he didn't know what the term blue baby was. And so eventually, the claim gets tested by reality. And in this series, My Disciple, we're talking about whether or not a person's claim to be a follower, a friend, a disciple of Jesus Christ. When it meets the reality, what is the test? How do we know if a guy is a real follower? How do we know if you're a real friend and disciple of Jesus? Because I know that you know that Christians can do the same thing. They can have the God talk. They can show up in the right places. They can have the appearances. They can say the right things. And the question isn't, how do I know if you're a believer? The question is, how does Jesus define what a true disciple is? And that's what we're talking about. He would make statements like, you're truly my disciple, or you're really my disciple, or you cannot be my disciple. And there's certain criteria that Jesus uses to assess your claim to being a follower of his. And so that's what we're doing in this series. We're looking at some of the statements. And in part one, Jesus says the claim meets the reality if you hold to his teaching. In John 8, 31 and 32, he says, you are truly my, you're, if you hold to my teaching, then you're truly my disciple, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We all know the second part of that statement, but the first part of the statement is actually the defining quality and characteristic of a disciple. If you hold to Jesus' teaching. And last time, in part one, we looked, when do you hold to Jesus' teaching? Well, it's not when life is a bowl of cherries and you're on the yellow brick road. It's when you're under pressure. That's why he says, if you hold to my teaching, because there's a temptation to do what? Let go. And compromise uh, your commitment to uh, his commands. And then we talked about the goal is to be good soil. As a disciple, the goal is to have a heart that is flexible and is humble and lets the seeds of God's truth come into your spirit humbly and you hear it, accept it, and produce a crop. Let's say that together. Hear it, accept it, produce a crop. Yeah, that's the good soil. And so if you're a disciple of Christ, you hold to Jesus' teaching, how do you do that? You he when you hear it, you accept it, right, as truth, as the truest thing about, uh, about you or whatever the issue is, and then you internalize it, and then you put it to work. It starts to produce results because you're applying it in real time. You're actually integrating it into how you really live versus faking it. Well, in today's study... Jesus says that being his disciple has, a, has an expected and a positive consequence for everyone connected to you. And you know what it is? They're going to feel more loved. Jesus says if you're his disciple, there's an expected and a positive consequence to the people connected to you. And the expected and positive consequence that he has is that they are going to feel more loved by you. So let's uh, look at our notes. Let's define what disciple is. Let's talk about the base teaching uh, that Jesus has about this. And then we'll look at the new command for a new kind of guy. All right. Well, a disciple, right there on your notes, is one who accepts, follows, and personally advances the teachings of another. They're a convinced follower. And the Greek word for that is methetes. They're a learner or a pupil. So you get the picture? 
They're, they're following uh, uh, the teacher. The teacher is telling them things. They're learning what the teacher is saying. They become convinced of what is being taught, and then they begin to imitate the teacher. That's why Jesus would say, come, follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. So come is the invitation to relationship. Follow me is the invitation to imitation. And make you is the process of impartation that goes to the disciple and then they turn into someone who becomes an ambassador of the teacher or Jesus. All right? Now, Jesus would draw the line, the new line, and he, his most famous sermon where he drew the new line in terms of, okay, this is what you think it means to follow God, but this is really what it means to follow God is in the Sermon on the Mount. He would say, you've heard it said, right? and there's the popular religious way of approaching things or the cultural way of approaching things or the ethnic and religious cultural way of approaching things. And then there's the way a disciple or a follower would be called to approach it. And on this topic of love, he says this, Matthew 5, 43 to 48, he says, you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Listen, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Let's finish it together. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the context is love. Jesus is saying, this is what God is, this is what God is modeling, perfecting love. Your heavenly Father loves everyone. He sends rain on everyone. The sun comes up for everyone. He provides for everyone. God loves everyone. And he loves them perfectly. And Jesus is challenging, hey, this is the way you think you should be, the way you think you should believe, the way you think you should behave. And then I'm saying, that's, the, that's, the, that, that, that's not my way. Here's my way. And his way always demands sacrifice and faith. Let's say sacrifice and faith. Sacrifice and faith. Yeah, his way is like, ooh. I mean, you can imagine being a dude hearing that and going, really? Love my enemy? How does that work out? Well, Jesus defines three, three things in his statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at those three things, just unpack it on this whole idea that his disciples love differently. The identifying action, of course, is, write this down, love. Right? How you love, who you love, the actions you take to show love. That's the identifying action of a disciple of Jesus. The identifying connection, Jesus says... You love differently so that, key word in his sentence, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If I am loving in this way, Jesus describes, I'm a son of the Father. I'm a son of the King. I'm a son of Christ versus a son of culture. Okay? And there's all, the two are always in conflict. And when you see Jesus interacting with his disciples, he's always comparing and contrasting being a son of culture and a son of Christ. Or a son of culture and a son of, uh, of covenant. Right? And that was always the issue with God's men. 
Okay? Even in the Old Testament, you know, the prophets would come and, and God's men, sons of covenant, they'd be blending, right? They'd be blending the col- other cultures and letting them seep into in the, way, the practices and the ways of, of other cultures. Same thing is true in the New Testament. And so Jesus is identifying the action is love, the connection is if you love this way, you are a son of the Father. So if the claim meets the reality, then you're a son of the Father. The third thing we want to notice is the identifying quality, which is that it's different. This is a qualitatively different way of loving. Broken male culture loves conditionally. I love you if you love me. I hate you if you hate me. If you hate me, I hate you. Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, love, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you. This kind of love is different. This love is so secure in the love of the Father that even though you hate me, I can love you. Wow. Think on that one for a sec. All right? Think about Jesus on the cross. Think about Jesus' words on the cross, loving the very people who would reject him. All right? Why? Because he's secure in the Father's love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, right? And so you see the, the, the action of love by Jesus. Jesus is the son of the Father, and when you see him operate in the New Testament and in the Gospels, it is such a radically different love than the broken male culture version that is out there. Why? Because it's unconditional, and we'll get to that in a little bit. There's a verse in 1 John 4.18 that talks about this kind of transcendent love from the Father changing us and morphing us. Let's read it together. Ready? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. You see how God's love eliminates fear. Let's say that together. God's love eliminates fear. Right. It is the fail-safe for how you operate on the inside. You're not an insecure man in Christ. You are a secure man. What makes me secure? What's the fail-safe when circumstances change or men challenge me or there's competition? It's because I'm loved by the one who matters most. I'm loved by God. And because I'm loved by God, that sets me securely in a relationship, and it can't be taken away, which means that as I'm walking into these situations and these relationships, I'm secure in the Father's love, and no matter what gets thrown at me, I'm secure in His love, so if I'm challenged, I can still love you. If I'm hated, I can still love you. If I'm disappointed, I can still love you. Why? Because I'm secure in the Father. Everybody say, secure in the Father. Secure in the Father. See, that's, what, that's why Jesus could walk tall. When you see Jesus' baptism and the moment that he has with the Father, all of a sudden, heaven's open, God speaks, this is my son who I love, in him I'm well pleased. Now, God is pleased with Jesus before he heals one leopard, preaches one sermon, feeds one person. Jesus is secure in the Father's love. And then if you read the next 11 chapters of Matthew, from 3 to 14, where God says it again. He does a lot of great things, not because he has has to, but because he's so confident and secure in God's love that he can walk into any situation and do the will of the Father. So let's look at the big idea here on my disciple and how the disciple of Jesus loves. Big idea is following Jesus changes relationships. How many relationships? 
All of them. All your family relationships. All your work relationships. All your community relationships. Right? All your adversarial relationships. Okay? It changes all your relationships. You know Jesus. You're a disciple of Jesus. The whole continuum of everyone that you know, from friend to enemy, they all change because you are loved by God. Right? So let's look at the new command for a new kind of guy where he actually talks about how this is how disciples are known. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus actually says it even in a more specific way for those who follow him. Let's read it together. Ready? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Okay? So there it is. There's the claim, and then there's the reality. And Jesus is drawing the, the new line between, hey, you can claim to follow me, but here's the reality that exposes the poser. All right? And that is, what's the quality of his relationships? And we've said this here many, many times. If you don't do your relationships right, you don't do life right, okay? And you're not doing life right if you're not loving the people in your life right. And the way you learn to love people in your life right is the way Jesus loves you. So if you want to be a disciple of Christ, according to what he says, you need to love people the way Jesus loves you, which now begs the question, how does Jesus love me so that I can love people the way he loves me and prove to be his disciple versus claim to be his disciple, all right? So let's look at that, all right? Number one, Jesus loves me sacrificially. Write that down. Jesus loves me sacrificially, right? In popular culture, 90% of all music downloads have to do with love, okay? But it's not sacrificial love. It's romantic love. It's erotic love, okay? Or maybe it's brotherly supportive love. But biblical love is always sacrificial. Let's, write, let's say that together. Biblical love is always sacrificial. That's right. It always involves sacrifice. There's creation. There's fall. And then what does God do? He loves us how? Sacrificially. Creation, fall, redemption. Then glory. All right? God loves us sacrificially. So Jesus loves us sacrificially. Look at what he says. In John 15, 12, and 13, let's read it together. Ready? This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So in chapter 13, he says, by this all people will know you're my disciples. How you love one another, love as I've loved you. Now he's getting drilling down on it, and he says the same thing, but then he defines it. He says, by this all men, well, no, you lay down your life for your friends. You're my friends. You're my disciples. You're my followers if you do what I command you. So there's the new command. The command is to love. If you love well, you are his disciple if you have love for other people. And then how does that other love for other people look? It means you lay down your life. It means it costs you. It means you give up stuff. It's easy to love people who love you. This kind of reflects very well on the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of like, you love comfortably, I say to love uncomfortably. Loving uncomfortably requires faith, doesn't it? 
right? Where you have to go, this is how I feel, but I'm going to love you anyway. I don't want to do that, but I'm going to do that anyway. You see, that's, that's the kind of love Jesus has for us, right? Look at what Jesus says here about the way he loves us in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Let's read it together. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. I underlined, I lay it down on my own initiative. You see, a disciple decides on their own before God to please God. How? To lay down their life. If you're married, you lay down your, your life for your spouse. And it's not because necessarily she deserves it all the time. Amen? But you do it because Jesus did it for you. You do it because you're secure in the Father's love. You do it because God commands you to do it. You do it because the spirit of the living Christ is in you. And if the spirit of the living Christ is in you, you're going to take your own initiative and you're going to lay it down for someone else. Now, it doesn't have to be a spouse. It could be a child. It doesn't have to be a child. It could be a coworker. It doesn't have to be a coworker. It could be your neighbor. It doesn't have to be your neighbor. It could be a total and complete stranger. But you do it. Why? Because that's how God loved you. He loved you sacrificially. Right Now, when we do that, what is the impact on the other person? So it's great to be able to, for Jesus to tell us, hey, love sacrificially, lay down your life, love how I love you. Well, write this down, sacrifice assigns worth. You sacrifice for the things that you deem valuable, don't you? Right? You guys would die for your kids. <coughs> I know you would do that. Why? Because they're valuable to you. You know, you send the message of worth to them because you, man, you, you get up every day and you go to work and you sacrifice and people don't know your pressures and struggles and things. You do what you got to do. You sacrifice. Why? Because you love them. You sacrifice for people who matter, right? And when you do, eventually they see your sacrifice and they go, man, that person really loved me. How do I know that? Because they gave up their own comfort so that I could experience comfort and provision and protection. Wow, right? Sacrifice assigns worth. So everybody say, Jesus loves me sacrificially. All right. Now say, Jesus loves me courageously. Jesus loves me courageously. That's right. So if the new command is love one another, even as I have loved you, you got to love sacrificially. Secondly, you got to courageously love. There's a moment when it comes to loving where it's all on the line. There's an intersection between what you know is, is how this is going to feel and, and your will, and your mind is processing, and your will is processing, and you know how it's going to feel. If you do that, it's going to cost me. It's going to take a pound of something, my ego, my money, my flesh, my pride, my control. It's going to take a pound of something, and you got to say yes to it, all right? Listen to Jesus talked to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew chapter 26, verses 38 and 39. Let's read together. Ready? Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. He went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will 
but as you will. That is the single most courageous moment of all time. How do I know that? Because it's the only time that Jesus confronts the will of God and doesn't want to do it. Because he knows what it's going to encompass from a human perspective. He knows what it involves. He knows exactly how many lashes. He knows the length of every nail. He knows the process. He knows he's going to be suffocated to death. He knows every facet of Roman crucifixion and torture. And he's saying, like all of us would say, is there a plan B? But he says, let this cup, the cup is the experience. So he's saying, I know what's in this cup. And it's a cup of torture. Let this cup, this experience, pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. That's courage. It's courageous when you know what's coming and you say yes to it anyway. And you know, that same Jesus, if you claim to be a follower, he lives in you. If he lives in you, you're going to be doing the same thing. You're going to be laying your your life down on your own initiative to send a message of worth to people. You're going to be courageously in the moment making a decision between fear versus faith. And you're going to trust God and you're going to say, hey, if there's any other way to do this, let's go that way, God. Yet not my will be done and let your will be done. Talks about this. Paul talks about this. Pastor Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 talks about Jesus. Let's read together, together. Ready? Being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Did you catch that? Even death on a cross. It's a distinguishing phrase. It's one thing to humble yourself courageously and become obedient to the point of death, but it's a whole nother thing to volunteer for that. And Paul's making not just a statement about Jesus' submission and surrender and security in the Father. He's making a statement about the level of courage that it took. And you notice that courage and humility work together. If you're, if you're under the mighty hand of God, which is what the Bible commands, to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, 1 Peter 5, 6, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Okay, that's the, that's the Jesus model. You humble yourself under God and you go through something and it's a delayed reward so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Jesus humbles himself under God. He becomes obedient in the absence of comfort and convenience and feeling. But then God lifts him up and puts him at the right hand. And gives him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. See, that's the life we're called to live as a disciple. We're called to live a life of loving sacrificially. Right? We're called to lo- live a life of loving courageously. Because that's how Jesus loved us. Now, courage assigns meaning. If sacrifice assigns worth, courage assigns meaning, right? When someone sacrifices, it took courage to sacrifice. It's just like if you are a Medal of Honor survivor. 
right? The meaning of the sacrifice, right, is uh, the meaning behind the sacrifice is that, man, that person was courageous. They, they see that. So there's an impact on the people that we love when we sacrifice and when we're courageous in how we love. Third, because Jesus said we're to love one another as he has loved us, and by this all men will know we're his disciples, Jesus loves us unconditionally. Jesus loves us unconditionally. Versus what? Conditionally, right? That's the import of his message on the Sermon on the Mount is that you love those who love you, but if they don't love you, you don't love them, okay? The key word is if, all right? Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, okay? There's a condition there, all right? Jesus loves us unconditionally. He says this in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Let's finish it together. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, I could have picked any number of different situations where Jesus loves unconditionally. Okay. I could have chosen the adulteress. And he, she was morally unacceptable. I could have chosen the Samaritan woman, where she is racially unacceptable. But I chose this one, where a leper is physically unacceptable, and you have to have the context of the time, right? This is first century. The reason uh, they separated lepers is not just for a contagious purpose, but for a religious purpose, right? To the point where if you had that, totally out of your control, but if you had leprosy, and a holy man like Jesus was in your midst, you had to warn that person. It's almost like you had this internal warning system like, I can't get near that person. That person can't touch me. I'm unclean. They're clean. So I have to yell, unclean. Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the the truckload of shame that people with leprosy walked around with. Secondly, as a human being, they never were touched. Couldn't touch you. And now, human beings need touch. They need love, and they need touch. So now you go back to this. The courage that it took, that leper says, and a leper came to him oh my gosh, I'm breaking all the rules, oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to be near this holy man, oh my goodness, I, ha I look like a monster. But to be free, that leper had to come to Jesus. And then you have that intersection, that moment when the way the men of his day treated people would either come into play, which the leper doesn't know, he could be just like the rest of them, or... Something's going to happen because I've heard that this man heals. I've heard that this man is different. I've heard that this man loves and courageously says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This is the moment that it's small, but it's powerful. Imagine when the Bible says Jesus stretched out his hand for the first time in God knows how many years. 
this leper is going to be touched. Think about that. Oh, just think about what's going on. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. This this person, this holy man, this righteous man, he's going to touch my unclean skin filled with sores and he says, "I'm willing. Be cleansed." See, that's that's unconditional love. Where you're not looking at their outsides, you're looking at their insides. And you know what Jesus saw when he saw the leper? Did he see their outsides or insides? Insides, yeah. And on the inside, that person's an image bearer. They bear the image of God. You know, we're so stuck on appearances, aren't we? We're so stuck on what people look like. We love people who look like us and who live where we live and all that stuff. That's not how Jesus rolled. Jesus went to the people who didn't look like you and didn't look like him, didn't act like him, and, but he was friends with them. And he was their champion. He was the champion of people who were filled with shame and who were the least and the lost and the left out. You see, that's what this community of believers is all about. We are men filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. The Bible says that God has poured the Spirit of his Son. Everybody say, of his Son. Of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit of his Son comes into us and changes us from the inside out. As his disciple, filled with his spirit, we love sacrificially. We love courageously. We love unconditionally. It talks about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Let's read it together with energy. Ready? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, in all of these parables, whether it's the prostitute caught in sin, the leper who has spots, all right, the centurion who comes from a pagan religion, Jesus loves every one of them. We're those people in those stories. We would separate ourselves from the leper, but I was a leper before I came, became a Christian because I was spotted with sin until Jesus said, I'm willing, be cleansed was filled with shame, filled with doubt, filled with, with feelings of like, I'm far from God. I'll never be good enough. I can't perform my way into heaven. I try. I go to church. I try to be a good person, but I fail here, 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 and here on the outside. And man, I fail even worse on the inside in my mind. And then Jesus comes and he says, I'm willing. Be cleansed. But you know what? I had to take the initiative call out to Jesus. You know, some of you are here and some of you are watching out there. And there's an area of your life that fills you with shame. I just want to tell you that if you call out to Jesus and you say, Jesus, you can make me clean. Jesus will say, I am willing, be cleansed. If there's an area of your life that you carried into this room or wherever you are right now and it needs cleansing, Jesus can cleanse you. Why? Because he loves you unconditionally. And that unconditional love assigns, write this down, security. Sacrifice assigns worth. Courage assigns meaning. No conditions assigns security. You know why it makes us secure? It's because there's nothing that you can do to earn that love, and there's nothing you can do that will lose it for you. That's a secure person. When I know, and then that's a motivated person. Amen? 
when Jesus does what he does to love me and there's nothing that I can do to earn his love, but then there's nothing I can do to lose his love, that means I just have it because he loves me, period. I am motivated. I am energized to go serve him and love him back, not because I have to, but because I want to. You see, there's the energy of the Christian life. That's the energy with which we live. Every day we wake up and we go, man, God loves me and there's nothing I did to earn it. And guess what? There's nothing I can do to lose it. That's the greatest thing in the whole wide world. What can I do just to say thank you? How can you say thank you to Jesus? You can obey his command to love other people the way that he has loved you. How has he loved you? Sacrificially, courageously, and unconditionally. Who's in your life? that God wants you to love that way. A lot of you have a face in your mind right now. A lot of you have a face in your mind right now. They might even live in your house. They might even sleep in your own bed. And there's some serious repentance that needs to happen today. There might be a family member where their face is in your mind. There needs to be some serious repentance today because God has spoken truth this morning to you. And he says, you need to be my disciple in that relationship, right? The claim does not jive with the reality and I'm calling you to become the real deal, to have spiritual integrity and to be my disciple. You know, that energy that comes from being loved unconditionally by God, I call it the grace effect. And in Luke chapter seven, there's a situation where there's a prostitute that enters a room like this. And you can tell who she is the second you lay eyes on her. Or maybe some of you know her. That's the wild one. She walks into the room and she's filled with shame, just like the leper. She breaks every cultural, gender, and religious rule. And she begins to weep and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, and she begins to anoint and worship Jesus as a prostitute in the presence of religious men. She gives him her very best. And imagine you're those men and the aroma of the alabaster jar that she opens and she puts it on, starts putting it on Jesus' feet just to keep worshiping him. And, and what Jesus knew. And what those guys knew, that when you anoint someone's feet with perfume, it's, a, it's an anointing for burial. You know how rap, spices, you know, in his day, how you entombed someone. Maybe she knows something that they don't know, or maybe she's just doing it. So now let's roll the film, because everybody's thinking something. Every guy in the room, just like you're in this room, they're thinking something. Oh, my goodness, what's going on? Oh, my, oh, oh my goodness. But nobody's saying anything. Jesus interrupts the silence. And Jesus answered him, by the way, answered when it says and Jesus answered him, it's what he's thinking. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, oh, I, I suppose the one who, whom he forgave more. He said to him, you have judged correctly, turning toward the woman. Now, look at the juxtaposition of the words and the body language. So he's talking to Simon, all the other guys are hearing, and then he goes like this. 
turning toward the woman. She's worshiping. She's wiping his feet with his tears. She's anointing his feet with perfume. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Let's finish it together. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, there's a discipleship lesson there. It's a big discipleship lesson, and it's this. A disciple, write this down, recognizes his sin. You see, there's, there's the differentiator between the prostitute and Simon. She knows who she is, and she knows the depths of forgiveness that she needs, and Simon is like, hey, man, I'm in the club. So Simon phones it in in terms of his commitment. She recognizes her sin, and she becomes a worshiper. Right? Secondly, a disciple responds to grace. A disciple responds to grace. They not only recognize their sin, but they respond energetically to grace. Some people ask me, like, why do you jump up and down? Why don't you care? Why do you, when you're, when you're in church and you, man, I'm, I'm responding to grace. I, I'm doing the end zone dance. You see me in church? I'm doing the end zone dance, man. I'm elated. I have gone from the frustration of the red zone of being unclean and, and not having my sins forgiven and not having a home in heaven to the end zone of having my sins forgiven, a purpose for living, and a home in heaven. Is that exciting or what? Are you kidding me? But, you know, it's really interesting. It's almost like Christians haven't told their spirit and face. They walk around with this sad face or this mean scowl. Or when they're, they're with people, they try to be holy when they should be just a, a grace-giving, happy, elated, thankful, forgiven sinner who's made it in, not because of their own merit, but because of a man who loved them sacrificially, courageously, and unconditionally. So a disciple recognizes his sin. A disciple responds to, to grace. Third, a disciple releases energy to love God and people. That's what you see in this story. She knows he will forgive her. And because she knows that he's a man who can give grace, she worships and she releases all that energy to the point where she enters a room she should never enter she lets out her emotions that she never lets out anywhere else. She courageously steps in. Man, that I could be like her today. That I could do something like that today. That I could enter a situation that makes me totally uncomfortable to worship God and love God and then to be in his presence and to then to be like him. And to enter someone else's life. You see, that's what it means to be a disciple. Because there's a lot of deadheader Christian men. They're deadheading. They phoned it in. They called in for the uniform. They're walking around like they're the real deal. But guess what? There is going to be a test. 
you will get called out. Your faith will be exposed. And that's where either you run or you repent. What are you going to do? Some of us need to repent. Because we're not holding to his teaching. And we're not loving people the way that he's loved us. Which means we're a poser. But if that's you, if you go, man, you know what? That hurt a little, Kenny. But I know that it's not a stab to kill me. It's a cut to heal me. If that's you then you need to do what a real disciple does. You need to recognize your sin. You need to respond to Jesus' grace in the right, appropriate way. You won the lottery, bro. And then you need to release some energy today. How? To release energy in line with how you really feel on the inside after recognizing your sin, and then it's forgiven. Go love people. Commit to God. Keep his commands. His commands, a lot of his commands involve loving people. Love another person, encourage another person, forgive another person, serve another person. Practice reciprocity. On your notes, there's a little scale, and if you're watching online, we have a little scale. Just think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. On this side of the scale is today, right now, in this moment, if I'm honest with myself, which is hard, I'm not being very loving. Over here at ten, I'm loving really well. Okay? Give yourself a number, man, and it's, there's no shame in any number that you give yourself if that's the reality, all right? And then I want you to start, make a second circle. This is where I want to be, man. Ten is perfection, so I don't think anybody should put ten. <laughs> Just ask your wife. She'll knock you down. Two, two three, four, five, seven slots. Uh, but you put where you want to be, all right? And then there's some questions. How do you become more loving? What does the action of love, loving involve based on what we've studied this morning? How does loving well translate into a witness to others? Because Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. And who can you love better right now? You see, this community of men and your community of men out there, you know what your world is waiting for? A community of men who know how to love well, not abuse well. That's why we're getting a bad rap. Your strength isn't the issue. It's the compassion and love connected to your strength that is the issue. All right, let's bow our heads. Let's ask God to come and meet us right now. Lord, we, 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 we come to you humbly. When we look at your life, Jesus, man, it's almost intimidating. But you know what? You've called us into your life. We are in you. We are in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing under heaven. We have we have the Holy Spirit. We're, we're crucified with Christ. We're resurrected with Christ. We're seated with Christ. God, you have given us an inheritance and a deposit through the Holy Spirit that guarantees our life in you until we meet you. But between now and then, Lord, help us to be your disciple. Help us to hold on to your teaching and help us to love one another as you have loved us. God, there's a few of us in the room that need to, to be more sacrificial in our love versus comfortable. There's a few of us here, like myself, I need to be more courageous and less fearful. And then I think for all of us, God, we put conditions on people that prevent us from entering their lives and keep us distant from them when we should be entering their lives. God, help us to recognize our sin today. Help us to respond to that grace that says, I'm willing, be cleansed. And then help us release energy like this prostitute who worshiped you with every last bit of courage and honesty and energy. In Christ's name we pray.
And all God's men said, Amen. And the reason he's not taking his place is because he loses his vision of God, which then he loses his perspective. You're out of place. And God is calling you back to take your place. As a, as a God's man who's a husband, as a God's man who's a dad, as a God's man who's a friend, as a God's man who's a neighbor, because no one else can take the territory that only you can take and that God has assigned you to take in this hour.